It's time for your weekly dose of Wayne's Comics. Welcome to episode 499 of the Wayne's Comics Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. This week has a very special interview. So special, in fact, that I'm going to go straight to the interview. There's a lot to get to in this episode's interview. So let's get on with the show. Okay, before we get started, I've got to explain a little something here. Uh, I had a serious dental surgery not that terribly long ago. And what that did was that meant, uh, as far as teeth go, I'm lacking in that area. And so certain letters like S and F and things like that, they sound weird when I say them. They told me I'd sound like Donald Duck, and they were pretty much right. But uh, the show must go on, and we've got some really good things and lots of interviews coming up. So I just wanted to let you know, if I sound strange, don't hold it against the guests because they've got good products that we need to support. And the first one we're going to get to talk with is Tom Pinchuk from Zoop.gg, and he's got a wonderful book called Remember Andy Xenon. And how you doing, Tom? Great. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk with you, and I've already supported your book, and as we're recording, we're recording a little early before this uh, post on Sunday, but the uh, the interesting thing about it is you're, you seem to be about two-thirds of the way there, and mm. so it's 20 days when we're recording this, and as I was telling you, I'm so terrible at math, I can't look at a calendar and go, 20 days, what is that? I think it's going to be right around September the 8th, but don't wait until that time. <laughs> Go to zoop.gg slash c slash remember Andy Xenon with an X. And go there and be sure to support like I have. And it's such an interesting book. So let me read real quickly a description and then we'll get into some more of it. It says, he was a boy adventurer until he lost his powers and had to grow up real fast. Now Andy wants an answer. What went wrong? It's also described as a one-shot, 48-page comic. And I, I like these one-shots and stuff. And, and from my understanding, when I was looking up your uh, – I listened to the video you have there, and I was looking up stuff you've done. You've been involved with younger heroes like Ben 10 and things like that, which I have always watched and I've always enjoyed. So I, I'm just kind of curious. Talk to me about this because this seems to be, you know, I've always wondered, you know, uh, superheroes and stuff like that tend to be people who are younger. And, you know, when they get to be the, uh, when they start to mature, things start to go wrong. And apparently that's what some of my, what might be going on here. And I'm just guessing right now. You haven't told me anything about what what's the, the story is. But I, I'm fascinated that instead of seeing Andy Zenon at the beginning, we're actually coming in after things have gone awry, shall we say. So is this kind of because, I, you know, Star Trek, uh, he actually wrote a show called, uh, Gene Roddenberry wrote a show called uh, Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, which is like a post-Federation show. Is that kind of what this is? Are you kind of looking like what happens after uh, Andy has his powers? Absolutely. And, and by the way, thank you so much for uh, supporting the book. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I worked on um, characters like Ben 10 and Max Steele and uh, the artist I'm working with, Nikos Kautzis, had worked on a, a reboot of Stretch Armstrong. And um, you know, these are kid, uh, kid heroes, kid adventurers. Um, the thing that I was especially struck by in when I came to work on them uh, was that they were really awesome characters to, to write. For, but they weren't iconic for me the way they were to a generation of young adults that I encountered when I was working on the shows. And what I, the iterations that I worked on were these reboots where the characters had aged and there was a certain uh, generation of viewers who liked the fact that it seemed that they were growing up alongside Ben or alongside Max. And then, um, you know, the networks, uh, the brands or what have you have this um, crossroads that they reach where okay, this is a kid show. It's supposed to be appealing to kids. The further away we get from these characters being 10 or in their young teens, is that relatable anymore? Especially if we're trying to 
target the next generation of kids who are going to be interested in the characters of the toys. So um, they had the reboots, and I, I it was it was interesting because I would run into um, working professionals actually in in animation and in comics who would talk about all of these fans, they feel so entitled or, um, you know, they need to get a grip. And then when I mentioned, I worked on these series, they're like, Oh, well, well I'm, now your episode's great, but let me tell you about this reboot. And I could see the frustration, um, that you just, you have a pretty, uh, concrete reminder that you've aged out of something and you can, you can stick around with it, but it's not going to be, um, it's not targeted specifically at you anymore. And, the kernel of the idea that I got was, well, what would happen or how would it feel for one of these kid adventurers to age out? Mm-hmm. See, it's uh, fascinating. You know, I, I find that so fascinating because, you know, what's interesting, like, let's take Ben 10 as a, an example. I, I watched the various incarnation of Ben 10. He was a kid and then he became older and then he became another older and they would change the name of the show. And finally, he was like a teenager. And yeah. then that kind of came to an end. I mean, his sister started dating Kevin Eleven, which I was, I remember looking at him going, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not that. Yeah, but, dating your enemy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, oh, I, 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 that whole thing got me. But anyway, and now of course they brought him back. He's gone back to being a young kid again. And I, I'm waiting for the next iteration to come along again and do that. But it, it's kind of interesting to me to, to look at this because, you know, there, there's X-Men and the mutants get their powers when they uh, mature, shall we say. Yeah. And so it's interesting to me that, that you've gone a different direction with this. Andy, and of course, I, I don't expect you to spoil anything here, but you know, Andy has basically come across a, an existence that is tough because he's gone the other way. I mean, you know, yeah. super- Superman didn't start to get his powers until he was a teenager. Although in mm-hmm. early books, that was not the case. He was super baby and super boy and all that stuff. But the thing about it to, that interests me is how is this going to, this is going to be so interesting because I don't think I've ever seen a story that went this way. So I'm, I'm completely fascinated as to how you're going to handle it. Well, uh, what I like to tell everybody is that the end is only the beginning so uh, whatever I've described or we've gone over for the premise of the show is the show, the, the book is probably only the, the first third of the story. Um, and there's a lot of twists and turns after that and maybe some unexpected uh, chances or new purposes for uh, Andy. Uh, I don't want to say too much about that, mm-hmm. um, but it's definitely something that um, it's it's surprisingly that there's a lot more intrigue a- after the adventures end mm-hmm. and something that. It's interesting because I, I was on another podcast and they brought up the, the sort of inversion of the X-Men. Um, I, I just found it was a really useful metaphor um, because I think there's a lot of an out, uh, interpretation of the X-Men as being a model, uh, you know, mutants as being sort of a um, you know metaphor for puberty, right? Like I think they get it about when they're around 13 and, mm-hmm. um, you know, reading into that or say like Spider-Man as well. Um but what I thought was interesting about this on the other end was it's an interesting metaphor for the ups and downs of life, right? Like you might think that you're, um, you look back on your childhood and you feel it, it's been misspent or your adolescence was reckless. And if only I knew then what I know now, I would have, um, you know, been more successful and, and cherished what I had better. And it's something that, um, and what's been really cool is that the more the book has gone out there, I've been finding, um, people from a, a real wide variety of uh, walks of life have found um, a lot to relate in the premise. Like I've, I've talked with um, people who've been child actors and they find a lot to relate in, in it. Um, uh, even uh, high school athletes or college athletes who eventually had to, you know, um, hang their gear up and, uh, you know, um, join the regular world. And I, I think it's something that um, it, w- it was a really great, um, you know, this is really ripe for uh, for dramas that he's facing this identity crisis of well, this whole time I've the, all these years I've I've been an adventurer and I've been living very carefree and now I have a real um, I've lost my powers suddenly and inexplicably and I just have to make do and I have to get a job and I have to get a apartment and I have to figure out how I'm getting groceries and you know have to learn how to relate to people, um, which is something that. 
Uh, I even talked with some uh, friends who were homeschooled and they talked about that being an interesting um, kind of curve for them because they would have, um, you know, part of the, the process of being, or, you know, part of the, uh, I guess the use of being in a pub, uh, you know, public school or high school is just to learn how to relate to people your age. And sometimes if you're homeschooled, you don't really get those lessons. And so mm-hmm. it can be sort of awkward when it comes like later in life is that you're 18 and you're sort of, um, you know, learning how to socialize like you might've when you were 12. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't something that I, I strictly planned um, when I, uh, I made the book, but I found it was, it was interesting that that was an interpretation I, I, I agreed with. Um, so it's, you know, and in the same way that I think the X-Men has uh, a whole variety of interpretations. I mean, that's, what's great about metaphor um, in superheroes is that you can, find a lot of uh analogies to it i think andy's situation um like i said uh, whatever you're coming in with you might find more to relate to andy's situation than you'd expect mm-hmm. it, it fascinates me because that was what i was exactly thinking about was uh, uh child actors mm. you know suddenly they are the center of attention everywhere you go everybody runs up and wants your autograph and then all of a sudden you start to change as a result of age and yeah. suddenly you go out in public and everybody's not running up to you wanting your autograph. And that is a major change for them because they want to be, they're used to being the center of attention and now suddenly they're not. It reminds me a little bit. I had a, a friend that I was growing up with and he was a, a, a big athlete. He was, it took like, all the rest of the kids in the in the uh, neighborhood to be able to tackle him. He was so strong. Yeah. He got to uh, college, and his knees started to give him trouble. And mm. he ended up becoming a coach rather than a player. He wanted to go be a pro football player, and he ended up being a coach in like a high school or something. And he was never quite the same after that. It was, you know, now he's on the sideline telling other people how to be what he wanted to be. And so he was always very different. And and yeah. the, I think that's you're going the same route. And that's why I, I'm going to fa- – this whole thing fascinates me. I'm just dying to see what is going to be Andy's – you know, <laughs> how is he going to respond to this? Well, uh, the other thing I, I, I should mention too is we have a, a companion piece that's included in the book. It's a um, – it's like a in-world, like a faux magazine article that's a, a retrospective on Andy's lost adventures. Mm-hmm. And it, um, I, it's com- I definitely inspired by like the biography excerpts in Watchmen. Um, and I thought it'd be interesting to ground this in a little more sense of time and place and um, realism. Um, but, you know, there's also there's interviews with other adventures who were um, contemporaries of Andy during his career, and they have varying opinions on him. Some of them liked him. Some of them really didn't. Some of them wish uh, he were still around. Some of them are glad he's gone. Um, they all have different theories about what happened to him. And then also we give um, with each interview, there's a little bit of an exploration of their backstories that kind of explores that um you know, reckless youth angle um, from a different uh, perspectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and there were, there was one in particular where he has a you know a potential med, a mentor who's effectively telling him to um, you know make sure you kind of stop and uh, slow down and and um, try to understand how you got here because if you don't, um, someone could take it away. Mm-hmm. And then in the 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 article, you find out why he's giving that advice, and it's because he he had been on a team like a family team. And there was this tragedy where um, it was a team of adventurers and the parents died and then they didn't give enough instructions to the kids about how to maintenance their gear so they could only be adventurers for, for as long as their gear don't, uh, doesn't break. <laughs> and there's seven of them and each one approaches it in a different way. Some of them quit right away. Some of them try until the stuff breaks. Some of them get themselves killed. And then um, this character is the only one who figures out a way to... Um, keep at it and, and keep in the scene. And, and that was actually inspired. I, I was, I had been doing a lot of research and I was really struck by um, the story of that, you know, that eighties band, the jets um, that was like this family of musicians. And it was kind of an interest, like at least the way that they told it was they could play, but they couldn't write songs. So they didn't have publishing rights. And they also had sort of been discovered by this retired manager who was, he was like their, they were like his last project. 
And what they were sort of ruefully remembering was that they would be going into these recording sessions or going to these record labels and not thinking that they had to make friends with staff there because you're a kid and you're, you're, you're bringing, you're being brought around and your, your conception of how the business works and what your role in it is very skewed. And what they observed was it was kind of a succession of events where they got dropped by the label. And it was also while the manager was retiring. And what they found out really quickly was that because they hadn't made those contacts, it didn't matter if they had a hit record, they couldn't get back into that recording studio or that record label. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and it, it's, it's stuff like that, that you don't, um, I, I, you know, even in my own experiences, I, I had a public access show when I was in high school. It was like the last days of public access, uh, pretty mm-hmm. much. Um, mm-hmm. and I was glad that, um, you know, I, I just sort of did it on a lark and I didn't, I didn't, or I, I really wanted to have some fun with it. And I, I didn't know, uh, you know, it, it's interesting that the further I get into, um, TV since then I have more perspective on what um, how that show fit into like cable deals for instance like mm-hmm. we were really only getting that deal or we could have that uh, show because I think it was some federal ruling or it might have been state ruling that if a, if a cable uh, station had so many subscribers they had to offer a community access channel and then if they got bigger they had to offer three and <laughs> so there was just a lot of stuff that I, you know, now that I knew like how those old logistics worked, I was thinking like, well, maybe I could have um, done even better back then, but it's too late. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the show about? Uh, it was just a really stupid uh, kids sketch comedy show. It was just me ah. and my friends. Um, mm-hmm. We would just do um, sketch, sketch comedy, basically. Um, oh. I mean, I was like, I was 14 at the time and mm-hmm. it was, I was more or less, I sort of had to wear all the hats because I think that's, you know, the, the thing I, you know, I always like think about when I, when I see like that documentary about the kids who did like their shot by shot remake of Indiana Jones, or they, you know, they met, they met friends who were really uh, committed to the same vision. And it's, it's like, I, at least in my experience, it was more like, okay, I want to do the show. The friends just want to appear in it. Um, I have to be the one who's figuring out the directing, the writing, the editing, um, the, uh, the setups and so on, because they're not going to, they, that it's not, they're not that passionate about it. Mm. Um, so mm. it was all, you know, every, pretty much every sketch was mine. There were occasionally sometimes there, you know, some of the, some of the friends would have ideas. Although I think even back then I was a little more conscious of like, let's maybe not, um, do some stuff that could get us into trouble. Like, uh, like jackass was really big back then. And I had to mm-hmm. keep resisting that they wanted us to do these like dangerous stunts or pranks. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we're not doing that. Like I'm not <laughs> like you watch jackass and you don't realize that that has a whole army of lawyers behind it. That is working for clearances and, and so mm-hmm. on. So, um, you know, I mean, it's also funny, too, because I do have those that that was all shot on on high eight. And then we were edited on a dub deck with VHS. I still have the tapes somewhere, but I, I don't really ever want to watch them. because I'm, sure I'm sure I thought it was a lot more clever back then than it is now. Well, but it was a start. You got to start somewhere. It's like when I started this podcast, I was fascinated by uh, interviewing and well, comics, of course, and I always had questions, and I could never get the answers to my questions. So mm. I started out doing it, and I was part of another podcast that a guy was doing from the UK, and so I would uh, do a comics section, and we would talk about comics, and I would do interviews and stuff like that. And I was just fascinated by the whole thing about how do you put this whole thing together, and so I, I invested in software. I invested in, in machinery, you know, the microphones and stuff like that. And I used to use Skype quite a bit to be able to call people because once you sign up for Skype, it's free. You call anywhere in the world. And, and I just started to do it. And if you ever listen to my very first episode, it's me talking for about 20 minutes. And it's horrible. Mm. It's just the world's worst 20 minutes if, if uh, ever was. And I, I swore to myself, I, and I was just doing that to get it up. So that somebody was up there, you know, I, I, I could get started. And then I decided I was never going to do that again. I was going to always talk to people more interesting than I am. And that's what happens with this. That's why I've been, uh, I'm hitting about 500 episodes before too long. But it's to, to oh, me. We're, 
we're, we're coming up in the, the the milestone five episode five hundred, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. It was it's ten years. I, I hit ten years in January, but I thought, nah, I'm going to wait until I hit five hundred before I do something special. We'll see. And of course, <laughs> then my my mouth happened to me, and now I'm not sure how I'm going to handle that. But we'll see how that goes. But the thing that was interesting to me, like you, I wanted to learn the aspects of it. How do you do this? How do you make this stuff happen? And what's funny is to me the the, the most fun parts are the parts that go in about five minutes the picking mm. of music the, the the stuff like that the, the scheduling of people and stuff like that i love that stuff the, the i used to spend a lot of time interviewing and also uh editing those interviews i would spend three to four hours on every 20 minute interview uh editing it to get it sound well and then people told me what are you doing that for people don't want to hear that they want to hear it the raw feed as they called it and i said really right and so now I hardly interview at all. I, or I, mean, I, just, I can't say that. I, I hardly edit. Yeah. I hardly edit. No, I was, was, was going to say, what, what, what is this now? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, see, I, I, let me, I'll do one other quick thing and then we'll get off of the subject. But I also don't believe in interviewing. I believe in a conversation. You and sure. I are talking and somebody is sitting, they're listening as if they were sitting in a room listening to us talking. It's almost like they could participate if they, if they would. But to me, I always kind of feel like I, I don't want to i had a friend of mine who used to write 10 questions and it didn't matter what you said and honestly he didn't listen to what you said he would go down that list of 10 questions when you stopped he would ask the next question and of course since he wasn't listening he didn't know they'd already answered that question i'd have to say uh they answered that question so i to me i want it to be something interesting where it's fun and and it feels very uh, uh organic in how we do it you know, I, I, I think that is so much more interesting. And I watch, I was watching David Letterman. He's got a show on now. And I was curious to watch how he handled the interview. You know, it was very much the same way as the way that I like it. It was organic. It was, well, what happened about this? When you bring the subject up, what does that mean? And, you know, I like things like that. Anyway, more than you ever want to know about that. But that's kind of the, the, the way I approach all these things. But the, the one thing I'm still interested in is what, was it that caused you to write Remember Andy Zenon? Was there a an event that happened? Was there uh, something you, you wanted to do this subject for a while and you finally got to it? How did you come to, to set this whole book up? Uh, it was a lot of things. Um, I, I worked the multimedia writer um, career, and it's just you can't always put your attention at every area at the same time. So I'd been working in animation uh, for the past few years. I'd started in comics, um, but I, my attention had been more focused on animation, and I'd sold an original series actually to Cartoon Network that was in development for a few years. Um, when we were, you know, we're plotting out the show and we're trying to see, okay, well, what's this, uh, we're planning it out as if it's a given, it's going to run for multiple seasons. And then it was a casualty of the Warner brothers merger. Mm. And it's just, uh, all of this buildup and then nothing you can do with it. Um, you have these characters that you want to introduce to a world and you can't do anything with them. Um, you can't show them to anybody. And mm-hmm. so um, that more that overlapped a bit with the pandemic, and I, I think there was a lot more time at home and sort of uh, the, the same kind of soul searching. I think a lot of people were going through, and I was thinking about I really want to get back to basics. I, I want to tell a story to an audience. I don't want to have as many um, middlemen or having to have um, executive boards uh, in between. Um, and I'd also thought, well, what were the, some of the comics that had inspired me um, when I really started getting interested in how comics were made and, and what they offered as a medium? And it, what I noticed was that more often than not, they were self-contained one-shots or nearly so. So the death of Captain Marvel, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, the mm. killing joke, mm. um, you know, the, the one-off issues of Astro City were some of my favorites. And I, mm. I really liked that sort of poetic focus. Um mm. Also, I, I think that when you work on a kid's show, there's a lot that um, just by nature you have to leave on the table because mm-hmm. I think with, with every um, premise, you know, there's more adult uh, concerns that you can bring into it or interpretations, but it's not really – it doesn't fit for the show. I don't, I don't think it would be wise to deal with, like, um, you know, an identity crisis or existential ennui that someone mm-hmm. might experience in their 20s in a kid's show. That, that would be mm-hmm. a real failure of – um, you know, efforts really. 
Mm-hmm. But it, it, but what I loved about uh, a lot of things in comics was that they they had been able to take a, archetypes and do um, deeper explorations of them, and so it just it was an over. And I thought about those interactions that I'd had with fans, and it started to coalesce. And the other thing that I thought was kind of fun was realizing that a, a lot of the shows I'd worked on were sort of part of the same lineage of superheroes, but mm-hmm. they were definitely um, their own. Um, beasts in a way mm-hmm. because um you know if, if you think about it right like the avengers and um the justice league and and so on and so forth i mean these are characters that were introduced in the golden age of superheroes and the silver age of superheroes and there are certain trappings that are always going to be there like like you know superman dresses like a circus strongman because that was something that you were more likely to see um back in the 30s or the, the 40s whereas if you look at um Ben, uh, he wears cargo pants and mm-hmm. a, uh, a more like athletic shirt. It's still branded. He still looks like a superhero. He's got that, um, that alien watch. Um, mm-hmm. Max Steele was wearing um, almost like a frogman outfit that was had more texture and practicality to it. Um, and so, and, and, you know, there were a lot of, uh, I think, a few other things where, for instance, like um, when we were working on Ben, uh, there was a note in the Bible that, you know, the story Bible for the, the series that um, uh, secret identities were going to be a non-issue. Mm. So no one, uh, when when Ben transforms into an alien, no one bats an eye. Um, mm. Nobody recognizes him when he's going on vacation, even though he never wears a mask. And mm. I think that there was a brilliance to that because that simplifies um, the wish fulfillment of that premise. But mm-hmm. it does intentionally leave a question um, off the table. Mm-hmm. And so in this in this uh, comic, I, what I wanted to explore was, well, the secret identity is a huge issue for Andy because mm-hmm. he he wants to be recognized or he, he doesn't want to be recognized by certain people. And he starts to realize that people are forgetting who he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was exciting to um, in the same way that, say, um, you know, Miracle Man had found um, maybe more mature. um uh, possibilities in you know the story of Shazam or mm-hmm. the way that um, you know Astro City was doing that for Silver Age characters or I you know I also found out about there was a novelist Philip Jose Farmer who was doing these um, biographies of Tarzan and Doc Savage mm-hmm. because those were characters that he'd grown up on and he wanted to make them more grounded in realism and I thought well what if it be, it's exciting that I might be the first one to do it for this generation of characters. Hmm. Wow. This, 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 these types of heroes, um, mm-hmm. because, well, you know, I mean, look in, in another life, I, I used to run like an anime magazine. And mm-hmm. what I started to realize after a while was, um, I think every adventure fiction novel kind of has its, its eras. It's sort of like, well, like the eight stages of man in psychology, mm-hmm. right. Where there's like the initial <laughs> earnest phase and then things mm-hmm. get a little more mature then there's the deconstructionist phase, and then there's the reconstructionist phase. And when I was, uh, you know, reviewing all these anime shows, I noticed that there was a show called Madoka Magica that was trying was a more adult version of Sailor Moon. Um, it was picking apart Sailor Moon. Um, there was a, a series called Kashern Sins that was trying to find like really uh, dramatic um, reads on. Um, this this kind of uh, disco era robot fighter named Kashern. Um, you know, there was even ones that took the characters like Power Rangers and were trying to find more. I think there was one called like Samurai Flamenco that was trying to find um, a more adult take on Super Sentai, which is what, you know, um, Power Rangers uh, started as. So mm-hmm. um, I think it's a natural evolution. I, I think it's something that um, it, it it's it's very cyclical with, with different traditions of uh, superheroes and adventure fiction. Um, I was also struck by at one point, I remember I was really crowing about uh, Madoka Magica to a friend who was a um, an artist in Artist Alley at some co- Comic Con, and he really couldn't wrap his head around that. He's like, "Why would anybody ever want to watch that?" And I was like, "Well, I, I mean, look, man, we're thirty to forty years after Dark Knight Returns. Like, this is an entire cottage industry of taking characters that started uh, regarded as kid stuff and finding more uh, mature um, takes on them. I, I don't think it should be that hard to um, imagine." Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that, and that was the thought was I, I, I had and I think to, to tie it all back was I, I when I ran into these fans of the shows that I'd worked on was that 
look, um, I, I can empathize. Uh, when I was younger, I mean, there was, I'd, I'd grown up on, say, like the Ninja Turtles or Power Rangers, and there was a time when there were reboots that reminded me that I aged out of them. <laughs> and, you know, you flash forward uh, 10, 20 years, and this is, you know, that's what this new fan base is going through. And I could relate to that. And so I thought it was more constructive to take that, like capture that sort of specific emotion and explore it in a story like this. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I can't remember where I was, but somebody was a Ben uh, 10, uh, one of the creators, and somebody was a kid went up and says, what's Ben doing now? And uh, the, the creator looked at him and, and, you know, rather than, and I, he told him that he was still fighting hero, fighting, you know, villains and stuff like that. And I said to him, well, okay, I'm not a kid. What is Ben doing now? And he said, <laughs> you know, and he gave me a very different answer yeah. <laughs> than he did, you know, for the, for the kid. And I, I thought that was kind of interesting to see. Well, <laughs> Yeah, that, that makes me think of um, I, I was having a pitch meeting with Disney once and I was asking the executive because she said that she'd actually worked on the staff like at the Disneyland Park mm-hmm. um, previously. And she said that uh, she was like the handler for Goofy's son, who was mm-hmm. his character called Max. And he was introduced mm-hmm. in a show called The Goof Troop. Mm-hmm. And now I can understand, well, they have Goofy having a son. And of course it raises the question of like, well, who's Max's mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and they never once addressed that in the show. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, of course I understand now that the reason they did that is because they were doing the development of the show and they, they wanted to make a series that was relatable to single parent households, but they didn't mm-hmm. want to get into the really depressing uh, <laughs> concepts of like death or, or divorce. Mm-hmm. So they just mm-hmm. left it uh, unanswered. But the thing was interesting was that she told me when when she'd be taking Max around the park, kids would always ask that, and they'd say, mm-hmm. well, where's Max's mother? Mm-hmm. And she would just say, oh, Max's mother is working. You, the reason you don't see her in the show is just because she's always working. <laughs> um, and, yeah. you know, I guess she's just a real workaholic, which I suppose could be its own, uh, you know, that, that's got its own kind of dramatic mm-hmm. uh possibilities in itself but i i love that answer because it was just it, that that was such a great like sort of it's just like you said it's kind of like the child logic right oh mm-hmm. well, that makes sense yep yeah because I, I have to say that that whole premise of the single dad business that was so touching i used to watch those mm. uh, and i would always be really touched by those i thought that those were really n- nicely done i mean it was it was tender you know the Here's Goofy, you know, who's who is Goofy, you know, and who is, you know, terrible, awful. <laughs> He's not what we would say respected by people around him, and sure. yet, and yet, he still has tremendous love for his son, and it comes through. And I just, I always kind of felt like, gosh, you know, that that's actually a very smartly written thing to do that kind of stuff. And so, like, it's like with with your book, I'm going to be fascinated to see what where you go as far as directions for the for Andy and for what kind of things you, knowing you, you're very likely to be able to go in, uh, make certain things happen that we haven't seen before. At least that's what I kind of expect. And I hope so, because I'd like to see something different and something new because I've been reading comics for decades. And for me to see something I haven't seen before, I go, Oh wow. I haven't seen that before. I'm always ecstatic. So that's what, with this one, I'm really going to be fascinated. Cause like I said, this concept is just something really good because I have not, you know, it's like <laughs> what's Ben 10 doing now, you know, kind of stuff. What's right. Andy doing now that you're going to get a chance to go to that place, which I have never seen anybody to my uh, satisfaction answer. So I'm really going to be, I, I'm so looking forward to seeing that. I just, I, I'm going to be fascinated to see what you're going to do with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the hope. Um, I think what I love about comics as well goes back to what I was saying is that, um, you know, if you're working in TV, you have to have a lot of people sign off on it and it be, kind of becomes a question of how many cooks are you putting in the kitchen. <laughs> and in this case, it's like I had an idea that was maybe a little left field. I, I think it makes perfect sense, but mm-hmm. it hasn't been done before. And mm-hmm. that's something that's more exciting to me than, you know, the upteenth retelling of a origin story. Um, mm-hmm. I think also um, we really tried to keep the, the focus as tight and the pacing as tight. So there's going to be a lot more, um, 
you know, unexpected directions with where the premise goes. And I think that they'll, they'll really fit. Um, we've also, and I think the companion piece is something that I'm very excited for uh, people to read because those who have, um, what I really wanted to do with it is there, you can read the first story just on its own and, and be totally satisfied. But then if you read the next companion piece, um, then what it does is it, it provides a little more background on the characters that you've encountered and then also maybe reframes and recontextualizes certain scenes. So when you go back over it and reread it again, you say, oh, wow, I, now I, I see a different dimension to the scene. I think maybe in the same way that we, what we talked about before, where it's like, you know, it's a kid's logic versus a, a, adult logic. Um, and, there's, you know, people who've had a chance to review it ahead of time have really responded to that. And that's something that's very uh, ex- um you know, gratifying for me because that was what we aimed for. Um, Cause I, I think more than anything, what I, what I wanted to do with this was make something that would have a longer shelf life and also something that people could really, it's not just a show that you're binging. And then as soon as it's um, off, you know, it's off screen then it's, you know, you're moving on to the next thing and it's in one ear out the other. Mm-hmm. Um, I really wanted to uh, craft a story here that people could sink into and find more layers of, um, meaning in and, and mm-hmm. notice some details and get rewarded for rereading it that you start to notice certain details you didn't notice the first time and, and something that um, is going to last a little longer versus say extended prologue um, mm-hmm. because I think that's a that's a pitfall a lot of um, a lot of comics will run into is that they, they really get carried away with the world building and the setup and they don't tell you a story with a beginning middle and end so um it would definitely be easy very easy to tell more stories with um with andy and with um the other people in his world but i i wanted to go in and treat this like really take the notion of one shot to heart in in all of its implications so it's we, we treated it as like this is our one shot mm-hmm. if we only you know, we're not we're not saving the good stuff for issue five. We're mm-hmm. just, we're giving it all to you in 48 pages. And it's something that we, um, you know, we're getting the most important stuff, um, the mm-hmm. most uh, emotional moments um, in the story. So his mom is not working full time somewhere then I take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did, we did actually have a, a comment in it about how um, he's an orphan and that mm-hmm. we, 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 it's a, there's a little bit of meta commentary, but we talk a little bit about how, um, you know, there's a lot of tropes of adventure fiction that it, it's kind of mm-hmm. comparable where there's like a practical use, but it winds up getting reframed in a more like storytelling capacity. Mm-hmm. So for instance, mm-hmm. like the reason why, Peter Parker and Harry Potter and Bruce Wayne and Superman, depending on which iteration of him you're reading is our orphans is because that sort of frees them to, they're not as constricted the way, um, uh, you know, kids with parents would be, or somebody mm-hmm. with parents would be. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's something we, we explore a bit. I mean, she's, we actually don't, I guess we never really do touch upon it. So I guess she could be working the whole time. <laughs> 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 okay, because that'd be interesting to see what, what what she could be doing that keeps you so busy that we never ever see her. That would be an interesting thing to see. Um, one thing I wanted to get into and talk a little bit about are the reward levels. They're lots of fun. There's one that nobody has claimed yet, and I'm really surprised. Uh, you have a writing class with you. That's You've right. Got five options, and it says attend a live class on Zoom with writer Tom Pinchuk, who has taught script writing courses for years at UCLA Extension. That's great. Uh, I, I hope some people dive on and do that, because just talking with you, I can hear your approach to things I think would be really good. See, I'm not a writer in the I, – I write reviews. I can tell you what works and why, but I, I can't come up with something original. I Everything I do is just standard stuff. And I've yet, n- never been able to do it, and I kind of gave up on all that. But the the thing that's interesting for me is if somebody who has the talent and the ability to do those kinds of things, I think the people could really learn a lot from uh, just our discussion here, brief as it is. And I, there's so many interesting things I think that people who are interested in writing comics could learn and pick up. So I, I hope that people do that. It's, it's $75 uh, right now as we're talking, and hopefully that will change. But uh, if there's five openings and there's still five openings unfortunately but i'd like to see people do that because i think that you would it would be fun i'd like to see what people would write after talking with you that'd be fun to see 
Well, yeah, it's um, I, I really appreciate that. It's I, I, it's something that um, you know, I've I've studied writing for a long time, and I've I've tried to view it from every angle, and it was a nice. Um, I've been able to teach it at uh, UCLA Extension, and also at Comic Con and the Scriptwriters Network. Um, I'm actually talking with some um, Russian film school about maybe doing some uh, teaching some seminars for them as well. Um, <laughs> You know, it's, it's really been a rewarding experience for me just because um, I think the more I articulate what works or what doesn't for me, and uh, I always say that I don't really lay out rules, I, I lay out best practices um, because, um, well, it's, it's you know, I, you know you, when you do the, you know, you interview sometimes to teach at these places and you have to give an explanation about why you're doing it. And I, I always think about how, um, you know, and I think every, every writer's got a story like this, but uh, my eighth grade English teacher actively tried to dissuade me from <laughs> writing. Um, and I mean, and, and it, the short version of it was, was that she just viewed memoirs as the only valid form of literature. Oh. And I was writing science fiction and fantasy back then. And she acted like we had to get her approval to take a creative writing elective in high school. And she just straight up said, you're not creative to me. Um, which even back then I, I found absurd. Um, and it was something that I, I, I have family who are teachers and they, they still are just appalled that uh, anybody would, you know, a teacher would ever say that to a 14 year old. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I, 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 what was, I, I had a good comparison of like a good teacher versus a bad teacher because then when I did take creative writing the next, um, the next year, um, his name was Doc Feiberger and he was, um, you know, he had his, the same sort of preference for non, you know, like uh, realistic fiction and nonfiction the way that uh, she did. But he could tell and he said to me that writing's in your blood and he wanted to mm -hmm. encourage that. He just said that I, I, I'd like you to consider that sometimes, you know, an argument at a dinner table can be just as thrilling or feel as apocalyptic as a battle at the end of space, which I thought was a good, you know, I thought that was good advice. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, and I, I try to I, I have students who um you know, I'll teach writing for TV. I've, I've taught for writing for different genres and they come really from all interests. Some want our standups and they want to develop their standup into um, a story. Some of them are love comic books and science fiction and they want to do that. Um, some are, I had one who was even like, he loved pro wrestling and he wanted to just learn how to do pro wrestling, uh, you know, pro wrestling storylines. And, you know, I, I keep an open mind about that because I think that it's, there's underlying um, storytelling principles all in there. And I, I, again, like I always go back to just, I, I had a very clear d d demonstration to me about how you could have one teacher who's very closed minded about how, you know, what writing options the students have versus one who was more um, open-minded about it. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, and I think going back to what you were saying before as well about wanting to learn, really being interested in a subject and wanting to learn more about it and all the ways that it works. Um, the other rewards that we have are, um, well, they're connected with, if you buy a copy of the book, but you'll also get a copy of the script and, um, the, um, the artist edition, which was all of, uh, Nikos's just his inks, like all of his line art. And, um, he did it all digitally, but it looks like it's, it's done with pen and ink. Um, <laughs> And I, I, you know, you know, I, I, I wanted to learn how to write comics after I got uh, Kurt Busiek and George Perez. There was a, um, their Avengers run. There was a rough cut mm -hmm. edition that had the, pen, you know, George Perez's pencils and Kurt Busiek's script. Mm -hmm. um, and it was fascinating to me to see, well, this is how a comic is done. Um, mm -hmm. I think my approach winds up being very detailed. I'll, I'll send it to friends and they're kind of, um, really taken aback sometimes about how long the scripts are, but I, I think it, it, especially if you're trying to work to a comic to its, um, you know, to its best strengths, I, I think you, it, 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 it's worthwhile to make it a, a more complex um, narrative to have mm -hmm. details that people might not notice right away. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's all sort of wrapped up in there that we tried to uh, make everything available. So if you want to, you know, if you really enjoyed uh, AD Xenon, you want to see how it came from, you know, uh, soup to nuts, um, you know, what the whole process was, um, mm -hmm. then we, we've offered that. Um, it's something, I mean, I, I personally, like, I always love to find early drafts of screenplays that they might mm -hmm. circulate online of mm -hmm. films that I enjoyed and sort of mm -hmm. compare and contrast. Like I found, um, 
you know, an early draft of the Terminator. <laughs> and I also found like Oliver Stone's absolutely insane first draft of Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> um, it was, that was, I mean, I, I'll go on a quick little sidebar about that, but I think, mm-hmm. that was, I think that was like pretty funny because I don't think I've ever read, like read a script that, well, what was interesting to me about that was I, I was intrigued to read it because I'd watched, I really loved that movie. And mm-hmm. there was a, a making of um, special feature that came with one of the uh, DVD versions of the film. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Oliver Stone was talking about his first draft and he said that he, um, you know, his script was really, you know, he was into cloning and genetic mutations and mutants and all that stuff ahead of, you know, years before anybody else was. And he said mm-hmm. it in a post-apocalyptic world mm-hmm. and he had a replete with all these mutants. And I was like, how the hell did you get paid? Like, I know how these, these arrangements works. Like if the producer hires you to write a Conan story and you deliver something that's completely different in setting, I don't know how that delivered. And so I was desperate to read um that script and then i found out that it, he kind of mischaracterized it um it's post-apocalyptic meaning that there had just been a great flood it's still mm-hmm. in the hyperborean age and then also that um there are the you know i guess at the time he used his mutant mutants as a catch-all term for any sort of like humanoid creature like an orc mm. um and uh, it's just it's a fascinating script to read though because mm-hmm. i you know he's talked about having cocaine problems and i, I it's hard not to <laughs> to read this and think that he was on cocaine while he's <laughs> reading it because like there are no slug lines. Every, uh, every scene description is a rambling um, run on sentence, um, like almost like a beat poetry. And then whenever there's a situation where he might be able to explain a, a scene in just like a sentence or so, like, um, you know, Conan stumbles into the throne room and the throne's adorned with jewels in the script. He'll go on to say, and the throne is ador- adorned with emeralds amethyst rubies sapphires moonstones <laughs> and it just keeps and you just like you're reading this and it just keeps going down i'm like okay i get the point <laughs> um but yeah you know i mean that that's the thing that uh look i mean i i, I think with all of this that if, if i could maybe tie it back to keep it on point is that um look I, I, you know you talk about inspirations for projects and i wanted to write the type of book i'd want to read um mm-hmm. and if we're putting together a campaign the way uh zoop is uh, putting it together. What's the, what are the sort of rewards that I, I would find useful. And I, I think I'd hope a, a class uh, might be useful. And then I, 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 you know, if you dig the book, I think you'd, I, I, if it were me, I'd want to know, okay, well, what was the beat? You know, how did, what, what did the script look like? How did it evolve? Um, uh, what did, you know, were there any decisions made from the line art to the coloring? We have a really great colorist, Ava De La Cruz, and she um, really put her stamp on the art. Um, mm-hmm. She did, phenomenal work so that's all uh, available there um there's also portfolio reviews by nikos and he'll do commissions um for for backers as well um we also have some uh variant covers um we've got the we got the cyber edition which is the the, the digital version of the book we have the super edition which is nikos's cover mm-hmm. we also have the mega edition which is brent schoonover's uh variant and then we have the ultra edition which is the variant cover by freddie e williams the second Hmm. So all really good got st- some good oh yeah all good stuff if you go to zoop.gg slash c slash remember any xenon of course with an x uh you get to see all these good things lots of the covers and things like that so you can make good choices with there um the way that you're talking about it you'd like to do more with uh andy xenon uh is there if this does really well and and gets a lot of attention do you have other stories in mind for Andy Zenon? Um, you know, I hate to talk about the count chickens before they're hatched. Um, mm-hmm. I think maybe what would be more interesting to me would be doing stories about the other characters that we glimpse in his world first. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of, I just sort of love the idea of, you know, we might do maybe more one shots about base jump Baz, which is another adventurer that he meets or fantastic. And all of them have, feet of clay and they're dealing with personal problems that are uh relatable like you know at the time of the story one of them's uh serving time in jail um the other one has a bad relationship with his family um which is something that i i find it's interesting when you sort of read about um you know certain like successful people or famous people who have like fractured relationships with with family who 
are maybe living normal lives but are happier even if they're not um you know um hitting certain metrics of success um i i don't know i i i i i actually am like nikos and i are going to be working on a we're closing a deal soon hopefully that we're going to be doing another uh, a one shot together mm. um it would be like in a in a, a series of one shots for another company i don't want to say too much about that yet but okay. i really um I really like. Uh, I just. I don't know. I. I, I think I, I. I fell back in love with one shots after doing this because um, some of the comics that I really liked the most were uh, back in the '90s when uh, Marvel and DC were doing fifth week events. Mm-hmm. So like Amalgam and Tangent mm-hmm. and um, you know um, Marvel's comics or New Year's Evil that it was kind of like a la carte anthologies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was just something kind of great about um, just that kind of poetic focus, because I think, you know, the, the, the tough thing with comics, uh, as I observed, is that it's, you know, there's a lot of excitement about your first issue. And then maybe there's a lot of excitement about the last issue. But then it's hard to get people as stoked about issue number three or four because mm-hmm. it's just, you know, it's just purely based off of plot. So, mm-hmm. um that's something there, there, maybe there's something to be said about like, instead of treating it like say like out, al- you know, songs off of an album you're having, um, mm-hmm. sorry, like, um, you know, songs in a concept album, they're more like singles, mm-hmm. right. You know, like, you know, mm-hmm. you, the, the, that's, what's kind of great about a single is that you can, um, you can listen to it on the radio and you just, you, it's, it exists in a perfectly formed, um, brevity. Um, mm-hmm. but then, if you if you then like maybe buy the album and you see it in a fuller context, it takes on a little more um, meaning. You know, when mm-hmm. you see like what the band what the band did in the uh, the album, especially if it's like a full out concept album. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess there's less of those these these days, but mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean we're we're talking about you'll definitely be seeing more comics from Nikos and I um, sooner or later. We were also talking like we were even talking about doing a six issue mini series together um, before uh this project came together and part of the reason we didn't pursue it was like we were just about to start shopping it around to publishers and the pandemic happened and mm. all these editors that we knew got laid off mm. and um you know there was a major disruption of comics and so like distribution and so that was also when we connected with zoop that was appealing about them was that there it's like an even more direct direct market you're really going straight to retailers and straight to readers as opposed mm-hmm. to having a distributor in the in the middle and that was something that was just very appealing to me about um that model because mm-hmm. i just I'd, I'd gone through three years of that and i really just wanted to get something in front of an audience and uh see people interact with the characters that i've created and and have an emotional um connection to it which is it's been kind of great with some people who've read the book so far um and and that's it's it's that's what you really savor and when you work in tv a lot of times you have to defer that for months unto years down the line um Mm -hmm. or if in a case where you're doing development on a show and there's a merger that you have nothing to no control over and you, you you put all your your heart and your blood sweat and tears into a project and now you can't you know it's like if a tree falls in the woods right mm-hmm. right no, no one can see it no one can interact with it right right um well i'm just kind of curious if people want to follow you and keep up with what you're up to how do they do that on social media well i'm on twitter um so it's just my name it's uh, at tom pinchuk which so t-o-m-p-i-n-c-h-u-k um which is all one word um, I started a newsletter recently that's called the Chuck Chronicles. Um, <laughs> okay. So that's uh, it's just like C H U K Chronicles, um, mm-hmm. which should be pretty easy to find. Um, I I kind of prefer that um, because I just had the hardest time trying to boil down what I'm thinking into however many characters and these sound bites. <laughs> and what I like about the newsletter is I can go into deeper detail and make them more substantial. And we also have a, um, a we, I, I should just say, I, um, I have a, um, you know, a mail column there that I've, I'm using for fan mail. And, you know, I'll, I, over the course of it, I'm, I'd say I, I updated it. I've only done about two installments so far, but it's been, the response has been great. And I'll probably be updating it maybe like every two, uh, three weeks or so. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
you know, it's it's something that you'll see updates about my projects. Um, there's also some stuff about like what I'm reading, or, you know, some friends work. I have some writing tips, which is a little like snippets from some of my classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll also, um, you know, I, I, I just talk a little bit about what's going on in my career. Like, you know, recently there was a show that I worked on a couple of years ago that I didn't realize was on Netflix. Um mm-hmm. And it was just, it was sort of news to me um, because that's sort of how TV works is that once you've written a script, there's not really any dedicated staffer who's there to keep you up to date. Um, so you sort of have to be your own cataloger. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I talked about that on, on, on a newsletter recently. Um, so, you know, and and the thing is like, I'll, I'll promote stuff on my Twitter feed as well. And, and typically like that's, um, that's where I'll put my, um, you know, if I have a new uh, newsletter out, I'll announce it there as well. It's just, it's, I, I found like kind of email through that site is, is going to be better for uh, communication just because I, I don't know. I, I tried the Twitter thing and I could just never make it work. Um, I just can't, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's so con- constricting for me. Yeah. I, I think they canceled my account for some reason on Twitter. And so I had to restart it and I'm kind of like, I don't know, because, you know, they always say I was Twitter, a tweet lasts on a, a thing for about eight seconds and then it's gone. So yeah. I'm kind of, I've struggled with Twitter. Should I really be doing this? You know? So anyway, that's good. But anyway, that's good that we well, can that, check that, that. That's, that's another, I mean, that's another part of it too, is that like, I, <laughs> I would talk to people about, you know, doing Twitter, right. And it's like, you kind of have to be on there all day. Yeah. You know, yeah. tweeting and retweeting. And I'm like, I'm trying to get scripts done. <laughs> <laughs> Time for like that. it's not, it's not really great to be like dividing my attention. I don't, I'm not going to get anything done. I, th- I think people would rather see some great comics from me than, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's tweet true. That I'm just... That's true. Well, let me one more time say that the place to get it is to get these is zoop, Z O O P as in Paul dot G G slash C as in Charlie slash remember Andy Xenon. That's Xenon starts with X, not a Z. So yeah. Now, I, one last thing I thought I would mention there's a praise section on the uh, there. And I, one of my favorite artist writers, if, or writer artists, depending on, on how he do it, he made some uh, comment about you that I thought was worth mentioning. Mm. Phil Hester, who uh, Green Arrow, Wonder Woman, many other good things. He says, don't ask me which book is going to be the new hotness. Ask me where Tom Pinchuk is right now. And I thought that was a nice uh, uh, thing to say. And I think accurate, too, because I'm going to be buying your stuff wherever I see it. If I see your name someplace, I'm going to be sure to pick it up. Well, yeah, and- I appreciate that, Wayne. Uh, yeah, Phil, Phil's a really great guy. And I, I was lucky that he, he gave us that endorsement. Um, you know, we've got you know, I, I was, I, I loved his work, like the coffin and, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, he did a book with Mike Cuddleson with the, uh, deep sleeper, which I really enjoyed. And I think he's, it's, it's, it's great when you, uh, have a creator whose work you admire, um, vibes with what you're doing. Um, and you know, we, we were pretty, we were kind of taking the book out and, and getting some feedback from some people. So we've also got, uh, some quotes from Kieran Gillen and Tim Seeley and, um, Jeffrey Thorne and, um, Jam Demetis and also Julia Lewald, who worked on um, X Men the Animated Series, and it was just very, um, you know, humbling and um, just uh, really validating to, to see these. Uh, these were all uh, creators whose work I, I deeply admired, and they um, they got the book and they liked it a lot. One last question: Do you know when this book's going to be available? When it's going to be mailed out? Um, I, I'd say probably the fall. Um, I. You know, it's that's something that Zoop kind of ha- handles, but I think that they've got about once the campaign ends, they're talking about probably like two to three months uh, turnover. Um, I don't. Again, there's what's kind of great about working with Zoop is that um, you know I they let me just kind of work on making the best comics that I can, and I get to do um, go out there and talk about the book like this, and I don't have to really um, do as many of the logistical stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, so. Like for instance, they they have their printers that they're working with and the delivery. So that's um, I you know I'd say by the you know I'd say probably by the fall. Um, but don't you know? But that's not um, that's my best. That's that's I, I think that's my educated guess. I don't I don't know the exact date yet. Well, whenever it gets here, I'm looking forward to reading it. So thanks, Tom. It was great to talk with you, and I'm going to be sure to to keep track of what you're up to, and maybe we can talk some more in the future when you get another project coming down the pike. I'd love that. Uh, thanks so much for having me, and uh, I'm glad you um, 
you know, you're, you're, you're digging the book and, uh, I should hopefully have if all goes well. You'll be seeing, uh, more of me in comics pretty soon. So stay tuned. People need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy. And I can't do that as Bruce Wayne, as a man from flesh and blood, I can be ignored. I can be destroyed, but as a symbol, get the latest from the comics universe news interviews previews and reviews listen to the weekly wayne's comics podcast so you can keep reading your comics and that's it for this episode be back next time i'll have another great interview with an excellent comics creator something i'm sure you won't want to miss but until then keep reading your comics